Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Travaux. I'm your host, Julia Wang, and this is The Current State. Welcome back to Travaux. I'm Julia Wang, and today I'll be talking with Weifeng Yang about the current state of European integration. Hi, Julia. Happy to be doing Travaux today. Thank you for joining us. Can you start us off by telling us about the latest countries to achieve EU candidacy status? Definitely. On June 23, 2022, Ukraine and Moldova became the two latest countries to achieve that status, barely four months since each country submitted their application. The process by which the two countries reached their candidacy status was astonishingly fast compared to the other country currently in the EU's enlargement policy, which usually takes at least a year or more between application and candidacy. For example, despite submitting its application in 2016, Bosnia and Herzegovina has still not yet achieved candidate status. And indeed, the EU's policy record regarding the West Balkans has failed. Gone was the era of 2004 when 10 new countries with a combined population of 75 million joined the EU in unison. And what about EU internal integration? Does that have the same track record as its external expansion efforts? I would argue that it has similar struggles. The essential aspect of EU internal integration, such as the Eurozone and the Schengen area, still need to be completed. Despite joining the EU some 15 years ago in 2007, with the European Parliament first urging their entry in 2011, Bulgaria and Romania remain out of the Schengen area. Only 19 of the 27 countries use the euro, with only two of the eight holdout countries, which is Croatia and Bulgaria, are remotely near joining. Indeed, the gap between EU countries more motivated to integrate and those that wish to cling to their sovereignty for a time appears to be ever-growing. After his first election in 2017, French President Emmanuel Macron called for a core of avant-garde countries leading deeper European integration, the specter of multi-speed Europe, that some core European countries could integrate among themselves while leaving those unwilling behind has since haunted the EU project. So what does a multi-speed Europe say about the prospects for European integration? With the uh, fast track for Ukraine and Moldova's EU applications, I believe prospects for European integration have changed dramatically. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, European integration seems to be back on its feet. To better understand the overall picture of European integration in light of these recent and dramatic events, I'll try to provide a rough vision of the concept of multi-speed Europe and its future with more holistic integration projects. To explain how we got here, can you explain some of the background of different nations' perspectives towards European integration? Sure. The idea that European nations hold different opinions on how much, if any, European integration is needed is certainly nothing new. At the European Economic Community, the EEC's founding, the more pro-integration inner six countries centered around France and Germany stood in stark contrast with the outer seven centered around the United Kingdom and Scandinavia. In fact, a separate organization, the European Free Trade Area, the EFTA, was founded by the Outer Seven to be a counterbalance to the EEC. Unlike the EEC, the EFTA does not have any supranational institutions with a political focus. EFTA members were allowed to pursue independent free trade agreements with other countries without the common external custom tariffs that existed within the EEC. Though the EEC eventually won out, with almost all EFTA members joining the EEC, which later became the EU, this only brought divergence into the institutions of the EU. The Danish people famously rejected the Maastricht Treaty, or the Treaty on the European Union, TEU, in 1992 via referendum. 
That was changed after Denmark secured some opt-outs. Tailored exceptions for existing members exempting them from participating in some integration projects. Perhaps the most famous serial abuser of opt-outs was the United Kingdom, which was famously granted exemptions from participating in both the Eurozone and the Schengen area, two of the most well-known aspects of European integration. This opt-out, as currently enjoyed by three EU states, Denmark, Ireland, and Poland, lays the groundwork for formal divergence in integration among EU countries. And given that context, how did the EU reach a greater sense of integration? Article 20 of the TEU stipulates that when at least nine member states participate in an area of enhanced cooperation, they can engage in such cooperation while making use of its institutions and exercise those competencies by applying relevant provisions of the treaties, subject to limits of certain provisions laid down in Part 6, Title 3 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the EU, the TFEU. With this article, enhanced cooperation became the official venue at which EU member states wishing for further integration among a subsector of member states could do so. Unlike the opt-outs option, new laws and integration projects under enhanced cooperation would not even become official EU acquis, meaning that future member states would not have to adopt these integration projects. In reality, despite much fear of its arrival, multi-speed Europe is in practice, built within the constitutional body of the EU. Even though in Article 20, enhanced cooperation should be a last resort, such cooperation has now spread to multiple areas, and integration as a backup option is being used prolifically among EU member states. These include legal homogenization regarding marriage and divorce, unifying patent law in the EU, and establishing the European Public Prosecutor's Office. And has this created any friction within the EU itself? Definitely. As I mentioned before, there is already an emergence of a de facto avant-garde core of 11 countries that participated in the existing formal enhanced cooperation agreements. A clear geographical divergence like the aforementioned historical divide between the EEC and the EFTA exists, with Western and Southern European states remaining more interested in the integration project than the more Eurosceptic Nordic and Eastern European states. And what has that meant for a multi-speed Europe? Article 20 provides that enhanced cooperation is for periods when the objectives of such cooperation cannot be obtained within the reasonable period by the union as a whole. Time and seeming impatience may thus appear as the reason for multi-speed integration. However, what is truly behind such impatience is the required unanimity in many aspects of EU decision-making and the reasonable frustration by some of the more pro-European countries against any potential veto. Since the Treaty of Lisbon reformed the EU towards deeper integration, many institutions no longer require unanimity. In practice, 80% of legislation passed by the Council of the EU, an institution akin to the U.S. Senate, where member states are represented individually, is via a process called Qualified Majority Vote, the QMV, a process that required the approval of 55% of EU member states, currently that's 15 out of 27 member states, and member states representing at least 65% of the EU population to pass. Nevertheless, unanimity remains the format for many key decision-making processes, such as foreign and security policy, EU membership, and EU finances. Unfortunately, it is also in these critical institutions where the EU operation is most widely known by the public, magnifying the failure whenever a member state threatens a veto. And has unanimity affected areas other than internal decision-making? 
If you consider the two examples I mentioned at the beginning, both EU external expansion and internal expansion regarding Schengen and the Euro currently require unanimity, which is the leading institutional reason behind these failures. Consider the much maligned EU accession process for North Macedonia. Despite submitting its application back in 2004, Skopje suffered 16 years of stalling due to Greece's veto over a naming dispute that was finally settled in 2020, granting North Macedonia's much-coveted candidate status. However, Skopje then suffered another veto by neighboring Bulgaria over a disagreement regarding the cultural status of the North Macedonian language. Only this year, 18 years after their initial application, was North Macedonia able to start formal accession talks, which will take roughly another decade to complete. Schengen prospects for Romania and Bulgaria are even more ironic. 11 years after their first rejection from the Schengen area in 2011, that's four years after they became EU member, despite now another European Parliament resolution, a European Commission report, and the Council of the EU Presidency, all urging their admittance, Romania and Bulgaria once again faces a veto from the Netherlands, which has a mere 3.3% of the EU population. Without institutional reform that does away with stringent unanimity, it is hard to imagine multi-speed Europe schemes such as enhanced cooperation not becoming more mainstream. Thank you so much for this wonderful overview. Any last takeaways you'd like to share with our audience? In terms of the future of multi-speed Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has provided a much-needed bolt of energy for the EU. Revitalizing hope for some EU Federalists that the end of multi-speed Europe may be here. Ukraine's fast-paced application process heralded this change. More concretely, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called for EU reform that will do away with unanimity on EU foreign policy making and offer German concession that will also end unanimity on EU finance decisions. However, it may be too soon to consider multi-speed Europe a passing fad. With the recent election of hard-right Giorgia Meloni into power in Italy, Euroscepticism remained a consistent political power within the EU. Divergence in attitude towards European integration is not going away anytime soon. Great. Thank you so much for being here today, Weifang. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Hiep Wen, Kyle Tang, Julia Wang, and the rest of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travaux. See you next week. Au revoir.